0: the games wealthy people play. You mentioned this uh, idea about like needing to be a debtor to grow your wealth. It's more of like a mindset shift that we need to make to start playing those games more than anything.
1: Yeah, I I mean, gosh, if you wanna go on a tangent, money's all fake and it's all debt and they can print to infinity and that's terrifying and it's a crying shame. We shouldn't have to go get educated, become a professional, Go get a job, work for our money, and also learn how to invest. It's like a second career. If we had sound money, we could save in a sound money system. That would be enough. It's not enough because it's being eroded by inflation and the fact that the reserve currency of the planet is controlled and can be diluted to infinity.
0: All right. Welcome to another episode. Um, my name is Pascal Wagner and I am the CEO of Grow Your Cash Flow. This is uh, the first uh, podcast of many under this new rebrand uh, where we help credit investors grow and diversify their monthly cash flow through investing in low-risk private placements so that they never have to worry about money again. We're not financial advisors providing you advice on your specific situation, but our email list social content, and this podcast are all designed to help you learn how to find and vet passive income investment opportunities so that someday, maybe we'll invest together. Uh, And at the very least, we want to help you accelerate your ability to gain financial freedom. So with that, let's dive in. Uh, Today on the show, I have Devin Elder. Welcome, Devin.
1: Great, great, Great to be here. Thanks, Pascal. Appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, man. Uh, I'm excited to have you on today. I'm just going to give a little bit of background on Devin so that we know who we're talking uh, to. Devin is the founder and CEO of DJE Texas Management Group, a vertically integrated multifamily investment firm based in San Antonio, Texas. Since 2012, the firm has completed hundreds of successful investment projects, including many full-cycle multifamily investments. He's the principal in over 2,000 doors uh, in multifamily. He's a pilot, podcast host, and owner of a real estate consulting firm, a brokerage and the DJE Foundation, which is a 501 C3 nonprofit supporting disadvantaged children in Texas and the Philippines. Personally, he began investing in funds and syndications in 2015, has invested over10 million dollars in over 33 deals as an LP. And professionally for his firm, he's raised over $100 million uh, in over 250 different deals. Uh, Private placements make up over 80% of his investments uh, with his favorites, including uh, things in the single-family home space, multifamily, and Bitcoin. Um, So excited to have you on today. Uh, The 3 things that I want to make sure that we cover in this episode specifically is... I'd love to review how you craft and create your own investment thesis and and different ways of thinking about that. The second piece is uh, the games that wealthy people play. I've I've heard you talk about this idea from another uh, podcast and wanted to dive in there a little bit more. And then thirdly, what to expect out of uh, your fund manager when you're investing uh, in different deals. So, you know, I'd like to combine your experiences of both an LP and a GP to, to paint the picture of how you see the world of investing, how you want to operate your firm, and in turn, you know, what you're looking for. But for our listeners out there who don't know about you, your business, your background, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do? Yeah, my
1: pleasure. So, I was born and raised in San Antonio. I've been married. 15 years as of this podcast have three children and um, I was in the corporate world for a bit out of college so worked for a tech company here in San Antonio and had a about a decade long career in the corporate world at a couple of the larger employers in San Antonio and somewhere in there's 2008 I started reading books like rich dad poor dad or tim ferris 4 hour work week and kind of getting this entrepreneurial bug and um one, I, th- I think being an entrepreneur suits me. And I think that's important as I've seen, um, it seems to be, it seems to be kind of a certain personality type that's attracted to that. So it suits me very well to be an entrepreneur. And I think I had just kind of run my course in the corporate world. I was looking kind of for more freedom, more autonomy, and more kind of direct ROI on my efforts. You know, I had, I had experiences in larger organizations where, um, I felt like my efforts were, you know, were not correlated to kind of my returns. And as an entrepreneur, they're, they're very directly correlated, um, up or down. So I wanted more of that, that correlation between my ingenuity and efforts and, and wanted that to kind of come back to me in a in a more um, correlated fashion than I was able to get in a W-2. And then beyond that, tax advantages, leverage, and all these things that you really cannot get as a W-2. So started down that path in 2008 from a kind of a research perspective while raising a family, while working the W-2, and then in 2012, um, started putting that into practice. So there was kind of this incubation period for me of a number of years of kind of reading and studying and I knew I wanted to be a business owner. I didn't know what the vehicle was go- going to be it, it, and I really at the time didn't have a real estate on my radar. But the real estate ended up clicking and kind of being the vehicle. And by that time in my life, you know, in my 30s at this point, I was ready to kind of go all in. It's like I didn't want to dabble around. I, I really wanted to commit to this real estate business as as my entrepreneurial endeavor. So I did. I started buying houses. I would buy houses with uh, hard money and do the Burr method that maybe some listeners heard from. But it's Popularized by Bigger Pockets, which is a big, big platform for real estate education. But buy it, um, renovate it, rent it out, and refinance it. And so the thesis there was that you could have equity in a house, cash flow, uh, appreciation potentially, depreciation for some tax advantages potentially. And the kicker for me, because I didn't start out with a tremendous amount of capital, was. I could be in these deals sometimes for zero out of pocket. And to me, that was like this magic trick where I could borrow money at 12%, 14% on a house that I couldn't get a bank loan on because of the condition. could use that high interest money to fix it up, make it perfect, place a tenant. Now I can go back to a bank and say, hey, I've got this perfect house, new roof, new AC, new everything. Got a tenant in it. It's got cash flow. Let me get a loan. Let me get a 70% loan, 75% loan. Through those loan proceeds, I would pay off the other original high interest lender and sometimes even put money back in my pocket. And so at the time in my life, you know, I've got a six figure job in corporate America, but I, I'm like, gosh, you know, I've got $35,000 equity in this house. It's unrealized, but I do three of those and that's a hundred grand. I do 10 of those and this is starting to stack up meaningfully in addition to some cash flow. So I was really off to the races at at that point. And that was kind of hooked by the real estate bug. I remember thinking, I wish somebody would have just put their arm around me when I was a sophomore in high school and show me this model. Because I, you know, I'd have a thousand houses by now. So went down that track, um, realized like a lot of people do the the scaling limitations. You know, I feel like you get to 10 rental houses and you kind of think. Gosh, I really don't want a hundred of these. I want to keep going. So the natural progression a lot of times is moving to multifamily where you can get a hundred or 300 doors at one address with, with a property management team. And that's, you know, long story short, that's what I ended up doing, getting into multifamily, a six unit, and then a 75, and then 130, and then a two, a 250 uh, to the point, you know, now where I've invested in purchased and sold, you know, over 5,000 units. Currently we own and manage 2,000 units in San Antonio and, investors kind of came along with us. Um, first, it would, be a, it would be a house. That was kind of my first endeavor raising capital. Somebody make a, a loan on a project and we, I'd go fix the project up and then refinance them out and take the investor out in, in 10 months. And then did that a few times, ended up doing that a lot of times. And then I kind of had a couple of folks that were like my first investors that took into multifamily, said, hey, multifamily different. It's not a debt deal where you're kind of getting this fixed return. This is an equity deal where we're all owners and we're all gonna take the ride for better or worse. And, you know, typically longer hold term, three to five years, but typically better return profile too. kind of 15 to 20% average annualized return target, which was better than say the 10% average annualized return on the, the house stuff or the, or the debt stuff where the investors were acting literally like a bank versus on the multifamily, the investors are acting as quite literally partners in the LLC that, you know, we're going to profit share. So that, that was it. And then along the way, we've expanded to, to some different asset classes. We do some land stuff. We do some industrial, we do some construction, that kind of thing. But in a nutshell, I feel like we're, I'm still playing the game I was playing 10 years ago, which is find an asset, put some money in it, my money, and somebody else's money so we're getting some leverage there that I can do more deals with others than i could on my own create some sort of value exit at a higher value and everybody gets uh everybody makes money and you know our corporate our core values um our first one is everybody involved wins and this is something that a mentor taught me early on and it just stuck with me and, and it's been really kind of my operating system ever, ever since. If we can go do a project where everybody wins, I mean, the contractor wants to work, he's going to get paid. The, uh, the, this, the neighbors on the street want the work. You're going to improve whatever you're working on. The investor wants to get paid. I want to get paid. Um, kind of looking around going, well, the, of all the parties at the table on this project, we all win. If we do this project, you know, if we can pull this off. So if that's the case, I want to do as many as I can for, rest of my life. And so that's kind of what we're still doing today. It might be a 300 unit apartment complex, but looking at it, can everybody in this transaction win? Then let's, let's go do more. Uh, so that's what, that's what we do today. You know, today we're 75 employees, um, mostly focused in San Antonio, a lot of multifamily, but some land and some other projects. So that's kind of the arc of, of my career. You know, I, I really enjoy still being an entrepreneur it's one of the kind of one of the most fun things i think that you can do to to make money with people that you're having fun with i I, you know as far as work goes it's the apex i I have lots of hobbies and do lots of other things but i really get a kick out of work and um and i you know I've just kind of found my my spot doing that and want to
0: want to just keep doing it i love that i love that incredible intro uh one of the the more articulate um concise ones um so I think one th- one thing I want to kind of dive into uh as one of our first topics here is this um notion of an investment thesis. Uh maybe how you uh, what your investment thesis is personally and and maybe how that uh, how that may differ from the firm. You know, some of the things that that come through in my mind um Right now, are okay. You've chosen only San Antonio, Texas, so you've decided to to bound yourself geographically. So you know there's probably some thought or reasoning that went into that. There are other um, parts of your you know firm. You you mentioned you do a whole a whole gamut of things. You do single family, multifamily, industrial. You know, I I know that you just uh, opened up a debt fund that I that I'd love to talk about and. you know, there are some people who craft this investment thesis that say all we do is multifamily in you know so and so geography that you know is value add or, or whatever. And um, there's obviously a reason for you choosing the strategy that you have today. So, so could you help maybe articulate um, how you think about your investing strategy? Let's go with DJE um, to, to start and and how you got there and the thought that went into it.
1: Right. I think it's, and you alluded to it, but I think it's important to kind of delineate between my personal investment strategy and then how I view kind of investor capital. Because I see those a little bit differently. And the way I view investor capital is I've been doing this over a decade and we've never lost any money. We've never even missed a pro forma. And not to say that that is going to happen in the future, but that is the most important thing in all my companies, right, is kind of that track record. So that means you know being very particular about deals and feeling very good about our ability to execute on on what we're getting into and what we're bringing other people's capital into. So I would say extremely high standard of care there. With my own capital, I'm a little more aggressive. I mean, my philosophy kind of since day 1 is invest till you're broke. Keep pushing it in deals. Go full cycle on a deal, keep pushing it. Now, I do live amazing lifestyle you know, it used to be rice and beans, beans and rice back when I was in my twenties is definitely not that now I live an amazing lifestyle, but I push it all back into, into my deals. Right. And just kind of keep that snowball going. So I'm pretty aggressive on that front. I, I like to not keep a lot of cash around. I like to keep pushing it in deals. So kind of some different philosophies, whether it's, it's, investor money or my investable capital I'll treat them a little bit differently. Um, and then I think the thesis depends on the asset class. You know when I was starting out with single family, my goal was to buy, renovate and refinance a house with zero out of pocket as a north star. Now sometimes I'd end up 5 or 10,000 out of pocket. Okay? That's that's not, you know, that's not bad. Cash flow cash returns are great, building equity, getting depreciation, appreciation, all these things. Then into multifamily, you know, I studied with people for years that were doing multifamily before I actually got into it as an operator. And, uh, you know, it's kind of just the classic value-add multifamily deal. You know, can you find a project at an attractive enough price point where you can go in and make enough improvements to to improve income, to improve net operating income, ultimately improve the value and exit At some point, where you're making a fifteen to twenty percent average annualized return net to the investors, not project level, and that's an important distinction. I I don't like people talk about project level returns. Who cares? You know, if you're talking about a global project level return, but then the general partner gets thirty percent of it as it as a limited partner or passive investor, like I don't care what the global, what the project does. I care what my net is. So I always talk about investor returns in terms of net to investor, net everything, net splits, fees, everything. So the multifamily thesis is, um, hey, there's a housing shortage. There's a lot of demand for affordable apartments. There's um, the ability to go in. And, you know, the name of the game really in in multifamily commercial real estate is is, uh, the valuation where a dollar of net operating income which just means all of our all of our income minus all our operating expenses is our net operating income. You know, these buildings are valued on a on a cap rate. So if a cap rate is 5, I'm going to take my dollar of net operating income and divide that by 0.05 and I've got $20 of value. Now this is on paper, it doesn't work out perfect, but That was pretty attractive to me when I was kind of studying multifamily and learning from some other operators before I got into the game. $1 of net operating income, and that could come through a dollar more income. It could come from a dollar of expense decrease. It could come from a combination. But $1 net operating income on a five cap is a $20 dollar improvement in value and which you can refinance out or sell. And so that leverage is, was, was attractive. And so that's still the game we're playing today. You know, we buy 200 unit apartment complex, preferably one with a longer term owner, preferably one at a low price, low price, Uh, preferably one where we can go in and create some kind of value, uh, operate it. And then at some point, three, four years uh, exit out of it. So that's the, the, the thesis there on multifamily. I don't, I don't think that's really changed. Lots of the variables have changed over the, over the years. Um, you know, debt terms kind of being probably one of the bigger, bigger factors in there. Um, but that's, you know, that's the thesis on multifamily is that there's a lot of demand here. And there's potentially older assets where you can create more value force some appreciation. And you know, I didn't, I didn't make that up. <laughs> A lot of people play in that game, but we've been able to play that game pretty well, um, in San Antonio over the last, you know, since 2014.
0: How do, how do these, so you mentioned you do more than just multifamily, right? And so there's this, there's this thought or there's notion or this question that comes up, which is why, uh, span out into other kind of asset classes or projects instead of being siloed into one thing. Yeah, it's
1: a great question. So, really out of the fact that I started out as a, as a solo entrepreneur and then I've grown a team and now we're, like I said, we're 75 employees. Most of that is on the property management side, right? I mean, my corporate office here, there's there's probably 10 employees at the corporate level, right? So, overwhelming majority of the team is, is on site somewhere, maintenance, leasing, management. But… I didn't ever want to be in a situation where I had to buy a multifamily deal to support this team and keep the keep things going. I, I think you really, I, I, my philosophy is, I need to be able to go a year without buying a deal or selling a deal. Um, and th- the the reality is, like you got to do some deals for some fees to keep things going. And so it was really more of a diversification strategy of okay we could diversify outside of San Antonio and we may I'm not I'm not against it but if my cadence for our company is if if I have my way and I don't always market doesn't always give it to me I'd like to buy 250 units a quarter thousand thousand doors a year maybe sell two maybe sell you know 500 doors that year you know if and and we're we're well equipped to kind of handle that cadence now I don't always I don't always always get that but I don't want to be in a position where I have to do those deals so you could diversify out, outside of San Antonio to do more deals but I want to diversify outside of the multifamily sector entirely something that you know if if all of multifamily was impacted in some way that I've got something else and, and really kind of came to it through uh, rural land which is a complete left turn here like a total different thing a uh, number of years back, I was searching to for a ranch to buy. Uh, met a broker as who one is, does, yeah, as one tends to do, right? So we're in Texas, right? So I, I meet a broker, end up buying a ranch, end up falling in love with it. Um, still, one of my favorite things to do to go down to the ranch, um, you know, yeah, the middle of nowhere. And my kids love it. I, I love it. Love being out. It's uh, it's honestly become a huge part of my life in the last couple of years. So I was enjoying the the ranch life so much and had built a pretty good relationship with a broker that sold me the ranch. And then we're we're looking for deals for investors because the multifamily is great. Inherently, one of the challenges we have with multifamily as a company is, let's say we go buy a deal and we're going to raise $10 million. Well, we might not have a deal for six months. And then all of a sudden, as a passive investor with DJE, you get an email that says, Here's a webinar for a new deal we launched. It's first come, first serve, kind of better drop everything and, and express your interest because two days later, it's, it's done. So you had a six months of nothing and then you got to look at a deal. You forgot to, you forgot to check your email or you're on vacation, whatever. Now the deal's full. And that just, uh, it, it, it works well like for the firm because we can raise capital only when we need it, but it's kind of a bad investor experience. So we're kind of looking for ways, how do we get more consistent deal flow out so anyway, I'm falling in love with the ranches. We need more deal flow. Uh, talk to my broker. Hey, can we buy some ranches and subdivide them and sell them and make a profit? And he said, "Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's try one. You know, 300 grand, 400 grand for a ranch. Chop it up, sell it. Makes great margin. Okay, that man, that was that was easy. <laughs> like, let's try another one. Make sure that wasn't a a fluke. Another one. Oh, that went great. Okay, we might be onto something here. Well, let's try a deal a little bit bigger and let's see if investors want to do it." As debt, right? Just a debt deal. So they're not really taking the ride on how the deal performs. They're they're basically acting like the bank. Did a deal with some investors. They like it. It's a little bit different menu item than the multifamily. It's shorter term. It's It pays 11% annually. It's a one-year turn. So it's kind of like you're not locked up for a while. Return profile is lower, but it's also first lien debt, which is quite different than equity where the bank is absolutely first in line. And then if, you know, the project does well, then the equity investors are, are next. So that was proved to be pretty attractive. So we just kind of built this whole land business where we can buy, you know, 20, $30 million of ranch land around Texas a year, um, offered out to investors as a debt, short-term debt offering. And so completely different thesis, uh, completely different business but it's been great. And then what it allows us to do is have some more deal flow that's not dependent on multifamily. So we can go these long stretches without buying a multifamily deal, still have something else to work on. It they're not very cumbersome from a kind of operations perspective. Multifamily is extremely uh operations intensive, right? People and problems and you know, pipes and ACs and and I mean you name it. Operationally it's got all the things. <laughs> so the ranch stuff has like none of the operational stuff. Um, so that's been, that's been good to kind of diversify. I, you know, I don't recommend a brand new investor that's looking to go out and be an operator. I Don't recommend they go try 10 things. I think you really want to get kind of get good at one thing and improve and iterate. Uh, but we've been doing it long enough where it was time to start to look at some different things. And it's been great for the firm. It's been great because that allows us to have more deal flow. It's been great for investors because we can kind of consistently have some things out and we can consistently be going full cycle on stuff where people are getting capital return. And if they want to redeploy with us, they can, if they put it somewhere else, that's great. Um, So that's kind of the, the rationale behind being in some multiple asset classes is, you know, is it something close to historically? Anyway, is it close to home? Something I can go visit right now that we can tightly control and generate a good outcome for for everyone involved. If so, we want to we want to build a we want to build a conveyor belt to do as many as we can. And so that's that's kind of where we're at at today. And they're radically different asset classes, but um, they both have their you know, different types of upsides and uh, the ranch stuff, especially is just a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun.
0: So if I'm hearing you correctly, you, you basically had, you know, first you had your original investment thesis, you're doing your, your multifamily type deals. And then, you know, this, these problems quote unquote arose where you're, you're trying to solve for certain problems within your firm. And so you've created this investment thesis around like, oh, let's, let's go into these other asset classes with the, Kind of like assumption that uh, that that will pan out and solve those problems for your firm. Do I ha- do I have that right? That's right. Yep. So um, with that in mind, so like great great way to be thinking about how to craft that kind of thesis. How would you maybe help someone who's a, an LP investor has maybe invested in their first deal uh, or, or has done a couple of these? Really, you know, there's this notion that. You know, you go and you sign up on a bunch of these different uh, email lists, like yours or mine, and and you can know about certain deals, and then you kind of need to make a split second decision on whether uh, you want to invest or not. But I I argue that that's not the right way to be going about it, and that actually you should be thinking about what do I want my money to do for me what is the investment thesis for that money is it cash flow is it appreciation is it you know reducing my taxable income and then finding investments that uh, that match that thesis so how would you like do you agree with that and and how would you provide maybe guidance for someone that's in that spot i fully agree with that i think that
1: people, people make emotional decisions, right? With all kinds of things, including money. And so I think the tendency that I've seen a lot is just to make emotional decisions and then justify them or rationalize them when really you should be looking at capital is just this pure form of energy. And you should first be looking at what do I, what do I want out of this? Not, and I, th- I feel like people just kind of go for the annual return. What's annual return? It's like, well, shoot, man, does it have do you need depreciation? Does this one have it or not? That's like a massive factor here. Uh, or gosh, this thing has a, a a 25 IRR, internal rate of return, 25% annualized return. That's really high. I'm going to put my money in it. And I, I would say like, that's a little, that's very high. That concerns me that someone's publishing that high. And I'm curious, maybe that they missed something to publish a number that high. So um, I totally agree that you you need to, in anything, determine your outcomes. What is your outcomes, and is it is it tax um, reduction, right? And that's a, that's a huge problem, I and mean, that's our number one lifetime bill for most people. So if it's that, that's just gonna that's gonna lead you down a different path. Is it cash flow where I've got to have X amount of dollars coming in, and it's got to be very stable and it can't be interrupted? Okay, that's a very different vehicle that you're looking for. So yeah, I fully agree with that. I think it's outcomes first. What is my outcome here, and then find the investments of all the choices out there that are going to meet that.
0: Definitely, definitely. So, so in terms of like, you know, when you've uh, when did this idea of an investment thesis come? come to you. I mean, like do you act think through all of your investments in that lens or, you know, is it like if I'm if I'm a newbie, is it like I, f- I first think okay, I want consistent income, so I should be looking for things that generate, you know, maybe monthly uh dividends instead of quarterly or you know, it's you know, I'm looking for something that um uh you know, isn't a a VC uh, type deal where you expect to get a check in 10 years. Uh, How would, how would you advise someone on that?
1: I think the first step is, is education. And I think it's easy to be overwhelmed. It's a double-edged sword. There's so much good content out there or there's just so much content in general and there's endless sources of education, but then at some point you've, you've got to take action. So getting a baseline of education, um, I think I think it's really important to talk to other people too. We can lit, we can all listen to podcasts, read books, um, join people's newsletters, things like that. But I think it's extremely important in investing or in anything to talk to other people and get, you know, maybe you maybe you form an investing club with some friends where you can bounce ideas around. But, you know, don't go it alone. Don't act quickly. I mean, there's gonna be investment vehicles are gonna be around for the rest of our lives, so don't be in a hurry to get in anything as these are just kind of mistakes I see sometimes, right? People are in a hurry to do, to do something. Um, but getting, getting in a group of, of other people that you can talk about this stuff with and not, you're not just reading a sponsor's marketing materials or reading something on the internet. Um, I think, I think it's valuable and then start small and be very patient, you know, getting, getting into a deal. But I think, um, you know, for the prospective passive investor, I think it's a lot of research up front just to understand that just the terms, right. And sometimes I'll tell people, Hey, go join CrowdStreet. Just if you, if you've no idea about commercial real estate investing or private placements or alternative investments, go join go, go join Crowd Street, look at those offerings. I'm not saying invest in anything, but you can at least download the decks, watch the webinars. And you're, if you're a total newbie, you're going to start to see the nomenclature and the terms over and over and how people are structuring things. And after you see 10 of them, you're going to go, okay, everybody's kind of building this the same way. There's a kind of common language here. And so I think that baseline education is super important to get. And then from there, start talking to other people. I mean, a lot of how private placements happen is through, is through referrals. You know, what is, what is somebody that's been doing it five years longer than me? doing what have they learned and what are they looking at right and maybe maybe um like a like any sort of vendor getting a recommendation or multiple recommendations i think is a good potential on-ramp there but there's a lot of there's a lot of educational resources out there you can take advantage of Just, just don't jump in too quick right you don't you don't have to get into this tomorrow you're not gonna let me say this to the prospective passive investor you are not gonna miss out right um you know, I always I tell the story. I had a chance to buy $1,000 of Bitcoin at 11 cents in 2011. I didn't do it. I don't lose sleep over the half a billion dollars that that could have turned into today, right? Um, that That is missing out. But if you're talking about your run-of-the-mill, passive investment, if somebody's telling you they've got a deal of a lifetime, like I would actually, that would turn me off to that deal.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in repeatable, like proven business models.
1: Yeah, absolutely. and 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 a risk-adjusted return where like, um you you want a nice strong return but you know on the other end of the spectrum is that vc model where you know we've got a uh we got a vc club here in san antonio that i joined for a couple years and i would go to these events and i'm like well tell you know what what is the thesis here it's like well you're going to strike out nine times lose everything and hopefully on the 10th one you get you know a 10x return 50x return and i was just like man i've been in real estate for a while how does it sound fun for me? I, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I can put money in something like that. Um, so I get, you know, In if we're talking about private placements, talking about real estate stuff, you're not going to miss out. Um, there's there's going to be people putting together all kinds of deals for forever. So take your time, study it, learn it. Uh, and then when you kind of have that baseline, yeah, meet some, meet some operators or get introduced to some people that are doing it. And then still watch, right? They have a deal come out. We tell people all the time, like, hey, if this deal isn't a, fit or the timing's not right please like don't this is not our last deal there'll be more stuff and we're not the only operator there's there's tons of operators out there so take your time get educated at some point maybe through friends you know get some referrals and start exploring it but 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 take it slow
0: i love that yeah uh just like being in certain groups or having someone tell you like that's not a good deal because of X, Y, and Z, and then you needing to figure out like, do I understand what X, Y, and Z means? Do I agree? Do I not? Informing my own opinion. I think I think half of creating an investment thesis or or even figuring out how to invest is understand. You, by default, you kind of have to think critically. Otherwise, you're literally just gambling and like taking right. someone else's word. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, uh, so I love that. I would love to kind of transition now to to this kind of notion of the games wealthy people play. Uh, in one of uh, another podcast that you were on with the Passive Income Brothers, uh, you mentioned this uh, idea about like needing to be a debtor to grow your wealth, and would love to just kind of bring that back and and kind of go on a tangent there a little bit. I, I like this idea that you know, wealthy people play the game differently. And it's not, it, it's more of like a mindset shift that we need to make to start playing those games more than anything.
1: Yeah, passive income brothers. Boy, that that had been a little while back. I remember that one. That was fun. That was fun. Yeah, I, I mean, gosh, if you want to go on a tangent, um, money's all fake and it's all debt and they can print to infinity and that's terrifying and it's a crying shame, right? Because we shouldn't have to, go get educated become a professional go get a job work for our money and also learn how to invest it's like a second career right it really is we shouldn't have to do that if we had sound money we could save and and in a sound money system that would be that would be enough it's not enough because it's being eroded by inflation and the fact that the reserve currency of the planet is controlled and can be diluted to infinity so because it can be diluted to infinity we have to play these games that we play so um, you're you're never you're never going to save your way to substantial wealth because of the erosion of the currency right and it's happened in every society all through time and it's absolutely happening so you so if if you're not going to save your way or, or work your way um to a substantial amount of wealth, you've got to play some other games. And, and the biggest one is, is leverage. And so one of the things I was taught very early on in my investing with career was OPT, OPM, OPK, right? that's other people's time, other people's money and other people's knowledge. And so those are, those are the games that we play to compress frames. and, and in terms of debt, um, Really, all, all the money's debt. You know, it's it's the amount of money that's been printed, and will continue to be printed, necessitates that we we place this our excess capital into things that will that will grow beyond um, beyond inflation eating away the purchasing power of it. So. That's assets, right? You know, if inflation is going to continue to go up, it's going to continue to push asset prices up. That means we need to own assets so that the value of our, our capital can be pushed up along with inflation. And, uh, you know, on the debt front, you've just – it's just a fundamental part of, um, of growing wealth. And that was real hard for me to kind of wrap my head around because, you know, I was raised to save money and be financially responsible and pay off debt, right? And um, to an extent, in certain areas, that that works. Right? I don't. I don't like to have any personal debt. I don't like to have any credit cards, things like that. But uh, on the business side, this concept of leverage through finance is is gonna is gonna take the return profile and magnify it. Now, it's a debt's a a, a tool, and it's a loaded gun, and it will absolutely kill you if you don't know how to use it. But it could, you know, it, it could do tremendous things too, and. As, as any tool can. So uh, I think just wrapping your head around using debt in a responsible way is a, a key to to growing wealth. And um, this is kind of something we're stuck with. I'm not saying I like it, but it is the game that we're playing because we don't have a sound money system and that the money, the money supply, the world reserve currency is constantly being eroded. So how do we place our capital in a way that um, our capital can grow at least in, in dollar terms maybe not in purchasing power terms but it could grow in dollar terms so it's not being eroded so you know kiyosaki says savers are losers and that's that's it you put a hundred thousand dollars in the bank in a savings account 10 years ago and your purchasing power has eroded and it will it will erode over the next 10 years so unfortunately we've all got to become once we get to kind of certain stage in life we've got some capital some excess capital we've kind of got to learn a new career and that is investing. Um, so that's the, that's the game we're playing. So that's um, you know, that's kind of what I think about some of the games, wealthy play from a leverage perspective. And then the other one is taxes. So, I mean, that, that's the, that's the big one. I, I said it earlier, single biggest lifetime expense. And I talked to a lot of uh, folks that, you know, that dawned on them late. You know, we're not taught finance in school. And that's a whole other tangent. I'm not going to go down, but you, you, you know, there's a lot of doctors I've talked to that are like, oh, went to a lot of school, got in a lot of debt, spent a lot of my great best years of my life studying to become a doctor. Now I've got a high income and my taxes are absolutely insane. It's like, yeah, you know that you did not really think about that. So I think you have, you know, if you're going to be wealthy, you have to do, you have to have you have to have a tax mitigation strategy so that's one of the reasons i'm personally attracted to, to real estate because i get millions of dollars of depreciation from the projects i do that that offset my taxes and so that's part of my tax strategy and it has to be with the with the tax rate um where it is i saw a meme i kind of chuckled at it said um man with don't tread on me flag in front of his house pays 42 percent tax rate and uh that's kind of where we're at we pay an egregiously high level of taxes at every turn. And in multiple so stages throughout, pay, mul- you know. Buy, sell, liquor tax, gas tax, federal, you know, a weird tax at every turn. and But some of that you can substantially, substantially mitigate with not too much foresight. It just takes, it takes being intentional, aware of it. And then making a plan, and so leverage other people's time, other people's money, other people's knowledge, uh, and then and then you know is is, is a huge gain the wealthy play, and then tax strategy uh, being the other one. And so I think you know those are kind of the two pillars in my mind of just having a different way to look at the world. You know, I've been an entrepreneur now for many years, but I was a, I was a W two employee for a lot of years too, and um, I've I've had both mindsets. I've kind of seen it both ways, but all of the tax advantages come on the business owner side of, of things. And so, um, you know, that's, you, you can't leave that one out. Taxes. Are- when,
0: when you're investing, are you only investing in things that provide some sort of tax advantage, or are there other plays where you, you know, it's the returns so good it doesn't matter? Yeah, it's a great question. For me
1: personally, uh, I'm in all kinds of things because I get so much depreciation from the way I'm set up as a general partner in real estate. You know, let's say you buy a $10 million building, I own 30% of it, the investors own 70. I'm getting 30% of the depreciation on a $10 million building. That's one transaction. There's you stack a few of those up over the years over or over a over a tax year, you know, we're as long now I'm on the treadmill, right? Because the next year I sell two assets and Okay. So you kind of, you're kind of getting on a treadmill for, for life with that. Um, but I'm okay with that. That's a, that's an acceptable strategy, you know, for me. So for me personally, I've got so much appreciation for my general partner holdings that uh, I don't, I'm not looking for tax advantages in every single, um, you know, investment that I'm in. But for others that don't have that, yeah, maybe maybe you're more selective on and, and our offerings that we have. Some sometimes they're debt offerings with no tax advantages. People just want a 11% return. Great. Uh, sometimes they're offerings where we've got depreciation. We could pass that through. So that's a little bit different flavor. Um, and if you're strictly a a passive investor, talk to your CPA, talk to whoever you know, whoever's doing your tax planning, and put a strategy together around that because it, it matters.
0: What are uh, I want to tr- transition to this final topic which is this this thought process of what do you think are operator best practices or things that you look for when you are investing in an operator I imagine that you know first being an operator and understanding how you want uh your firm to work and how you expect um how how you want your investors to look at you has has greatly informed how you think about investing in other people's deals. Um, would you align with that statement? And, and maybe what are those things that you you think are best practices or that you expect now, or that you, know, you, you maybe unfortunately are not seeing as much in the industry and you'd like to see more?
1: Right, I'll start out with a couple of very concrete things, and then I wanna to touch on something that's less concrete. The very concrete things I wanna see are, ideally, full cycle, similar deal. So, you're, you're saying you're going to do this construction project and do, it's going to do X, Y, and Z. Show me how the last one you did went. And if the answer is, well, I don't have one. Okay. I don't know if I'm going to invest in that deal. Now, I'm not saying that's a, you know, there was a time when I did not have a full cycle deal. It, we all, when at some point, did not have full cycle deals. So it's kind of funny when a sponsor that's got a bunch of full cycle deals can say, don't invest with anybody that hasn't done a full cycle deal. But to me, that's kind of the gold standard. Like, have you done this before? This same product, maybe same type, age, location, and what was the outcome? And if you can point to a string of outcomes, okay, the, the future doesn't equal the past. Investing carries risk, but I feel pretty good about it. About that, so that's kind of the gold standard in my mind. Full cycle, similar deals, um, co-invest. That's that's obvious. But if you're raising a million dollars, uh, let's say a project is going to have a million dollars in it, whether it's a you know debt deal, cash deal, equity deal, whatever. There's a million dollars going in. What's the sponsor have? You know, a lot of times the bank wants to see ten percent. Okay, so the sponsor's got hundred grand in. It. All right, the sponsor's got twenty percent in it, fifty percent in it. The higher, the better right? Uh, the, the syndicating by nature, people do it so they can do bigger deals by bringing in other people's capital. So that's great. But meaningful sponsor co-invest, I think is important. So those are kind of the two, the two big ones. Has this sponsor done full cycle deal um, with good results on a similar type project? What is their co-invest? And then the other one is, you know, is this the kind of person that would mortgage their house to make me whole if it came to it? And I don't know that there's a lot of people that fit that, and I don't know if there's a way to gauge that. But that's always been my philosophy: is I will go on the corner and sell newspapers before I lose somebody's money.
0: And so this is this is actually really interesting because I also know at one point you had this issue around wire fraud, uh, and then an, an investor mm-hmm. wired you supposedly twenty five k. Yeah. Sent to the wrong address. Yes. And you made them whole. Like, so, so this is, this is part of one of my, I want you to continue, but one of my questions here is like, where do you draw the line? Like, how much, like, that is a fine line, right? Like, if you own a couple hundred million or tens of millions, a little bit harder to do. Yeah.
1: That's a great point. I think for for me, you draw the line when it just becomes impossible, right? If it was uh, 25,000 is different than 25 million, right? So, at some point, you know, it's – the, the $25,000 decision is easier to, to make than, let's say, a $25 million decision. Um, so, that, yeah, you – there's just kind of a point where it's like, yeah, that, that it, just, it just doesn't work. Our firm's grown a ton. We got a lot of projects. We, we do have tens of millions of dollars out, but they're across dozens of projects, right? So, I think there's some safety there. In that this is not one 100 million dollar project that we're hope you know hoping goes well. It's definitely spread out over a lot of projects. Um, so it's it's difficult to quantify. Is this sponsor the kind of person that would you know refund money in the event of a wire fraud? I, I don't know. You know, I I know a couple of guys that's happened to and they've they've made people whole. And a lot of this is you know f- kind of start out with friends and family. And it's like, man, you know, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go to the ends of the earth to make you whole, and I just I really respect that in an operator. Um, versus, I've kind of seen, I've seen the opposite. I've seen attitudes of operators that's like, well, you sign the PPM, spell out all the risks, and it's like, oh God, that's true. We sign these legal documents to spell out all the risks, but to that's just to me, that's a fundamentally wrong attitude. If somebody told me they were going to work the next three years and work their tail off and sell all kind of stuff they own to make me whole, like that's the kind of person I want to invest with. Um, and it's not fair to you know you can't quantify that. You could ask somebody if they're like that and they're going to say yes, of course. And so you, you don't know. Um, so and and you can't read minds. But I think um, you know a sponsor needs to be absolutely. Um, I, you know, terrified, I don't know if it's the right word, but it's a sacred duty to be a steward of other people's capital. And so I, I think maybe that's a more fair way to say, it. is this person, am I feeling that this person feels the gravity of this sacred duty of managing other people's capital? Because I think about capital as um, it's stored life energy. I'm literally taking your life into my hands because you worked 10 years to build that company to have an exit and now you've got a couple of million dollars and you want to give me 250000 of it. Well, that represents literally life that you spent already and is gone forever. And now you're entrusting me to grow this life if you're to think about it kind of as concentrated like life energy. I don't know that there's a more important thing than I do, maybe outside of being a father or whatever. But so, the, you know, how do you, how do you get that out of an operator? Hey, man. Is it, do you Are you appreciating my sacred life energy? I mean,
0: I <laughs> think you can kind of understand, you know, like, like when you meet people, you know, sure. like, is this guy, you know, shady or is this, is this gal like, you know, top notch and she seems like a good, upstanding citizen. For sure. For sure. So you're, you're, I mean, and that's the game, right? You're trying to determine
1: that. And so some people you can kind of tell immediately. Some Some you can't tell as much. That's why track record, I think, is, you know, kind of the best barometer that we have to say you know what have what have you done in the past what are other people saying about you but um but that but but that's it you know so some concrete things in terms of have they done a full cycle deal that's similar um what are they putting into the deal what do they stand to lose right if this deal doesn't go as planned and then um are they the kind of person that's gonna go to the end of the earth to try to try to make things uh whole if if things go sideways and you know i've had some partnerships where um you know, it didn't go well and partnership needed money. And I, and i I told the partner like, dude, sell your house. Like this is serious, right? Go go make it, make it happen. And, um, I understand why people would be hesitant (laughs) to do that, but if you're taking on capital, I really think you need to be a hundred percent committed to, to delivering on it through like any means necessary. And you bring up a good point. If it's $10 million and you don't, have a way to make that whole, it's, yeah, that's, that's a different deal, but I think it's more of kind of an attitude and an appreciation for the sacredness of what you're, what you're doing here. And I think that's, you know, it's different for a syndicator that's got personal relationships that are investing versus say, you know, you throw your money over to Charles Schwab or whatever, like they're obviously, you know, you just kind of a number at that point. So those are, those are some of my thoughts on uh, evaluating sponsors, I guess.
0: To to kind of just maybe uh, elaborate on that point for a, a second is, you know, right now we are in a time where there are operators coming back, asking for capital calls, asking for investors to put additional money into those deals, and and oftentimes, I mean, I guess it depends on how the, the deal docs are structured, but you know, that investor could be taken out; they don't, you know, can't participate if they if they don't um, put money in, you know. I, I, I don't really know what my question is there, but it's like, you know, I imagine some of these questions are first, you know, it's probably a whole separate discussion of like, how do you avoid those? Um, But like, if you're in that position, it's like, you don't really have that many, how should you be thinking about it if you're in that position?
1: As a passive investor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: Obviously nobody gets into a deal planning for that to happen. And, it's tricky. And I was just having this conversation today with an investor that one of his deals is capital call them. It's happening right now. We're talking in September of twenty twenty-three and it's absolutely happening out there. So the game then becomes can we capitalize this project and push it through? Because, you know, a project that is that is um has some kind of an issue. You know, maybe the occupancy's not there or you you name the issue, it's going to be worth less, and the exit there is probably not a tr- an exit now at the time of capital call, probably not viable. Otherwise, you'd take it. So, is this additional capital I'm putting in enough to get us to the other side? It it's it's hard now in this you know period we're in with with uh, you know eleven consecutive rate hikes and and a lot of pain in the marketplace. It's hard to feel like real estate's forgiving because it's not right now. Over longer times, it tends to be. And so kind of my philosophy around that is, and I've just seen it enough times in some of my own projects that haven't gone great. If you could just power through, maybe it's maybe it's a use like a flip house. You know, if you're halfway through flipping a house and the contractor bails on you and you run out of money, like that house isn't worth anything to anybody. It's only worth something on the other side of investing, pushing it through, getting the project done, maybe waiting for the market to correct. You. you know, I've got a handful of deals over the years that were rentals that were supposed to be flips that just whatever reason didn't happen and then turn them into rentals just because like, gosh, I'm going to lose money if I sell this flip house. But if I wait three years, hey, now now this is actually like a real money maker. So I think if you can, and that's the question on a capital call. Is this capital call going to put us in a position to ride out whatever the issue is to get to a point where we can see enough appreciation to, you know, be made whole or maybe even make our kind of initial projection. Uh, Hopefully the answer is yes. And that's something you're gonna have to really dig in on. Uh, Or are we just putting more money into a project that's going to zero? And, and you know, that's the scary, that's the scary thing is you're doubling down on something that could fail. And I think if you are putting money into a capital call um, you want to see a a clear kind of plan to the other side. And in which case, like me personally, I probably have a higher risk tolerance just because I've done so many deals, but you know, I'm okay with that if there's a kind of a plan to get to the other side where the where the value is going to be there and you could be made whole or or pull your capital out. Um, I think the fear, especially among passive investors, that maybe they're not, I mean, it's not their job to be in every piece of the operations, right? They they're limited partner, passive investor kind of betting on the sponsor to make things right. And, um, it's scary to, to have to, you know, put more money in and double down on a project without kind of any certainty about it coming out the other side. So no easy answers there, you know, um, I think going back to avoiding those deals, it's finding sponsors that have done similar projects, um, and had good outcomes on them. And hopefully that mitigates some of the risk, but, uh, you know, especially right now, what we're seeing with these rate hikes, this is—I don't think a lot of people saw that coming in such an abrupt fashion. So it is
0: creating a lot of pain. We'll see how long it lasts. Um, is there any recourse that that you have in that position, or not? As a, not really. As, I mean, investor. Yeah, I mean, you either pay up or or you sit out, right? Like, and yeah, and, and you know, and there's not really not, a lawsuit.
1: Yeah. I think, I think there's, there's lawsuit, you know, potential, but if you sign the private placement memorandum, those things are usually pretty, pretty solid and spell out all the risks. And so, and then, you know, the lawsuit is kind of like, there's one winner there and it's the attorneys, right? Typically. right? Um, so, you know, yeah, I don't say, th- I, I'd say there's not a lot of recourse there. There really isn't. It's, it's either invest and maintain your your equity ownership position, or sit it out and and get diluted. Um, but but maybe hang on to whatever cash you know you were going to put into the capital call and not and not put it at risk. So very personal decision, very painful. Um, you know we we talk about our track record, never having done a capital call again. The future we don't you know does not equal the past, but at least in ten years haven't done a capital call, and for that reason they're painful they are painful, man.
0: Totally. Devin, this was awesome. Thank you so much for for joining us on the show today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure, Pascal. I really appreciate you having me on. I great, great questions. Great
0: show. Thank you. It's my honor. Hell yeah. So uh, just some final thoughts for our listeners. There are uh, 350 of you who are already on our email list, but if you aren't already and you'd like access to our Database of uh, private opportunities that we see every week, some of which you know are, are from Devon. If they're five hundred six C opportunities, uh, and um, you can join our investment club and, and get access to that list at GrowYourCashflow.io. Uh, and lastly, if you have any questions, suggestions, or just loved a particular show, reach out to me on Twitter at Pascal Wagner One, and uh, and we'll also have Devon's uh, information in the show notes so you can reach out to him as well if you have any. any questions so thanks for joining us and i will see you on the next show